Hi, I'm Sanera Madani, and I'm a mom of two, a daughter of an immigrant and an unlikely entrepreneur who went from scaling an idea to a billion dollar business. Yes, a billion dollar business. Along the way, I learned that less than 2% of female founders ever hit 1 million in revenue. And I became obsessed on a mission to change that. I believe that there is so much gatekeeping in business knowledge and that we as female entrepreneurs should be learning from other female founders and leaders who have broken the statistics. Since I never went to CEO school, I've had to learn it all the hard way, but you shouldn't have to because we believe that you deserve to have it all. And honestly, nothing bad happens when women make more money. Grab a seat because class is officially in session. Welcome to CEO School. Hey everyone, it's Sanira here. As you may know, CEO School is officially part of the HubSpot Podcasting Network. We're now part of a family of shows designed to help professionals listen, learn, and grow by providing access to the world's leading B2B podcasts like Being Boss, hosted by Emily Thompson. Being Boss is an exploration of not only what it means, but what it takes to be a boss as a creative business owner, freelancer, or side hustler. I enjoyed listening in as Amy, along with her guest, Nikki Nash, discussed very practical ways to create a marketing plan that works. Listen to Being Boss wherever you get your podcast, brought to you by the HubSpot Podcast Network. Hi, everyone. Welcome to CEO School. I'm your host, Sanira Madani, and today I have a women's expert is what I'm going to call her. All things women empowerment, women growth, women um, career and strategist. Um, Christy Hunter R. Scott is an award-winning advisor, speaker, and author. She is the author of a book called Begin Boldly, How Women Can Reimagine Risk. So she's a risk expert, embrace uncertainty, and launch a brilliant career. And she's going to talk about how we can harness the power of intentional risk-taking to create more dynamic and vibrant careers uh, for ourselves in our business experiences and truly just how we can utilize that to our advantage. Um, and that's not something that I think about when, when I think about women is risk-taking. So I'm really excited to deep dive into this topic because I personally have struggled uh, with taking risk. And once I've taken the risks, they've paid massive, massive uh, dividends, but it's taking that first step that's so hard. So Christy, welcome to the show. I'm so excited to have this dialogue with you on all things risk and being bold. Amazing. Thank you so much for having me. I'm absolutely thrilled to be here. And I hope by the end of today, you walk away feeling even more excited about taking risks in your own career. Um, it seems like you have taken so many and are inspiring your audience to do the same. Um, and then be really able to take that forward as you continue discussions on this podcast. Oh, I'm I'm definitely I've gotten definitely more comfortable on taking risk. And I don't I don't know if that initial there's still fear around it, but I will say that I guess I've I've gotten some reward from taking risk now. So I feel like, okay, if I want to go big, I have to I when there's fear, now I know that I I shouldn't run from it. There's probably something there that I need to maybe lean in towards. And I think that's been the change of when I think about the first pieces of risk that I took. But I've always been around risk takers. I've always been around entrepreneurs. So risk was something that I was 
that was always around me. And so I almost shied away from taking risks because of that. I came from entrepreneurial parents and just moved a lot, 10 different schools in 12 years. And all I wanted to do was to be a dentist and have like a 401k and safety and like did not want to take any risk. And here I am. I've taken a lot of risks. So I, I don't know. It. I don't know what happened yeah. in between. <laughs> but you know, you just said something absolutely amazing, which is, okay. um, you said like initially you you felt fear and it was something you kind of shied away from. And then you were, what you're saying is now you use fear as a signal or cue and you're kind of leaning into it because you know that there could be reward on the other side. And I think that's so powerful. So I was thinking about this the other day and um, I, I was like in a store and it said, there was that quote up on the wall, like, what would you do if you weren't afraid? And I was like, this is so much BS. Like we're all afraid all the time. Like we're going to be afraid. And actually the question is, what are you going to do when you feel most afraid, even in spite of that fear? And so I also think this whole concept of women being fearless is absolutely like another thing that just bothers me because I'm like, we're always going to have fear. The question, we shouldn't be seeking not to feel fear. Like, just like you said, it's a cue that there's a risk or a decision to be made that may have a major reward on the other side. So I think we have to tune into our fear and actually use that as that kind of time to assess, is this a risk worth making? But then have the tools to actually not get rid of that fear, but move forward despite the fact that we're feeling it. Oh my God, I love it. At first, when you were like, said the quote, I was like, I was like, oh yeah, what would I do if I wasn't afraid? And then you tell me, you're like, well, we were supposed to be. And I'm like, yeah, we're supposed to be afraid. And it's so true. Yeah. We're almost supposed, to, we're taught to be fearless and that's not human. Human, like no. literally since like dating back to the caveman era, we're supposed to have fear. It's what keeps us safe. It's what keeps us alive. Like fear is yeah. a good thing. Fear isn't a bad thing. And I think my executive coach taught me that early on about fear. And the analogy that I love the most about fear, one that resonated the most with me around fear is that there's always going to be fear. Fear is a good thing. Um, just don't let fear be the one in the driver's seat, right? Like you're in the driver's seat and it's okay to have fear and know that, you know, you don't want it to always be in the passenger seat, but if you could put it in the back seat, it's okay. It's okay to have fear. You're supposed to have fear, but don't let it come up front. And it's okay if it comes up front because there's times that it might just don't let it come into the driver's seat because you always have to be in control, even knowing that there's fear there because having fear is, is normal. Um, and so I love that analogy about fear. And I'm like, oh, I get it. It's it's okay that it's with me. It's supposed to yeah. be with me. Yeah. I mean, when I talk to women that I coach, one thing I say is like feeling fear is really like the price of admission for having a rich and bold and beautiful existence. Like if you didn't have fear of loss, you wouldn't have loved hard, like in any way, sense or form. If you didn't have fear, you're not taking big enough risks in your life. And so I think we're meant to feel fear. And I actually like when I've interviewed some of the most successful executives that I feature in my research, they're like how I've asked them, how often do you feel afraid? And they say every day. And so when I look at these women that have made like bold and brilliant careers, it's not because they've gotten rid of fear. It's because they progress in the face of fear. I, I, I completely agree. And I think that it's such a different way to think about it. I do feel fear every day, right? I feel fear in so many different different ways. If I think about the ways in my life, even today, having everything, right? Like from an outside world perspective, it's like, what do I need to be fearful of? I have a pretty amazing life that I've built. 
right? A, amazing business. I've got the like family. I've got all the things that I've wanted and dreamed of. But my biggest fear of is losing it, right? So like, like my biggest fear is that. My biggest fear are like the most basic things. Like as a mother, I'm always fearful like for my children. Like that's like a fear that has never gone away. Um, and fear in different ways for them. So it's not just like the physical fear like that, you know, that kind of is in the back of your mind of are they physically okay? Are they are they healthy? Are they fine? Are they taken care of? It's the fear of like, you know, my daughter came home um, last weekend. Um, she was bullied for the first time and like three boys like, you know, at the playground um, literally called, they literally told her, they're like, oh, you're ugly. And the boys just don't know what they're saying. And she's like the most beautiful girl. And she has a lot of confidence. So she knows not to like, that's, she's just like, she doesn't know what to do. And she came and talked to me about it. And I, you know, I want to show her how to like, you know, speak up for herself and not even allow that. It's not about going to the teacher or, so I have all of these fears for her in her, in like the shaping of her future. So that's like a fear that I have as like a mother. I'm a business owner. So fear of not only things in my business, but then fear of things that are out of my control. So I guess maybe now I know, now that I'm having a therapy session and like publicly, <laughs> I think that the thing that I'm most fearful of is actually now not the things that I control are the things that are not in my control. So I think that's where my fear comes most. It's like when I think about my business, I'm not fearful anymore. I know I'm in the driver's seat. I know what to control. I'm fearful of the unknown factor of the markets, of things that like of a security breach or things that I don't control. For my kids, it's not necessarily about things that I'm in control over. It's things that I'm not in control over. So that's where my fear comes from, Christy. Thank you for this session. Let me know where I need to Venmo you. No, I'm like, no, but what I was going to tell you is you're not alone. And it's fascinating in my research. So most people think that a fear of failure is what disincentivizes women from risk-taking. But actually, a fear of the uncertainty of the unknown disincentivizes risk-taking just as much as the fear of failure. So it's exactly what you're saying. It's that fear of change, unknown, uncertainty. And that is so daunting. And so we often play it safe in these little cages thinking that, let me focus on what I can control. But in a life of ever-changing variables, pandemics, socioeconomic reckonings, racial reckonings, gender reckonings, we know that like there's a million variables and any sense of control is kind of a false sense of control. So I actually have a whole chapter on this agile mindset that I talk about, and it's all about how you embrace uncertainty and change. And I often think like the key to like really getting past some of those like resistance points that you just talked about is just believing that irrespective of the outcome, you can figure it out. Like I can figure it out. I've figured out uncertain things in the past. I've figured out change in the past. I've been blindsided by exit, but I know I can figure it out. And you know, Marie Forleo who runs B-School, like she wrote that book, like everything's figure outable. And it's not even a real word, but I love that. It's just like, no matter what, you got this. And it's almost like this life mantra. Um, the other thing that really helps me and maybe this will help you as well. Like when I see a change coming my way that I cannot control at all, like I'm, I'm you know, freaking out. I'm like, oh my gosh, how, what am I going to do with this? I always say to myself, Christy, you can focus on resistance or response and it's your choice. Like resistance or strategic response. And the way I think about it is like, imagine you're a sailor and an uncertain, unpredictable storm comes in your path. 
focusing on resistance means shutting down. I can't believe this has happened. I'm going to take all the sails down, move away from the helm, go below deck, go below deck and just let fate take its course. But focusing on strategic response in the face of that change and uncertainty is being like, I can't control the wind, but I'm going to get up there and control my sails, control my boat to the extent that I can. And we know that the best sailors face uncertainty, face storms, face weather patterns, face reefs, face tide changes all the time. But if they focus on resistance and just shut down, you know, we know what happens, right? So I always ask myself, resistance or response? I love that. I actually recently... Um, was having a conversation around this concept of acceptance and resistance. And I don't know if you've heard of, I'm, I mean, you sound like, you mean you, you know this topic really well. I'm not the, the organizational psychologist here, but I, I get a lot of uh, great coaching from leaders. I'm like a, definitely in a, uh, someone who's a, um, a learner um, uh, of like just human psychology and spirituality as well, I guess you could say, and mindfulness. And something that we were talking about was this concept of resistance and acceptance. And that level of resistance against acceptance actually equals the level of suffering. And so from like the, from like, from like the most basic principle of, again, I don't know why I like car analogies. I don't really, I hate driving. So, um, but my coach relates to me in this way, I guess. So she, we were talking about like at the signal. So if you're like super impatient and you see the signal turns turns green and you want to, you know, you're like annoyed that the driver in front of you has not pressed the gas two seconds faster than you need them to. And so, you know, people will get frustrated. So that's the resistance. Um, your, your resistance is the fact that you can't accept the fact that you're going to be two seconds late. So you have no acceptance. Then you resist it. But then the suffering is your frustration, right? You're like, you get frustrated and that's the suffering. But the level of resistance to the acceptance actually is what controls the suffering. So if you could just accept, hey, I'm going to be two seconds late and it's not going to change. It's, it's going to be OK. I'm going to accept that I'm going to be another not even two seconds, whatever, the millisecond of that time. You And if you can accept that, the resistance level changes, which then alleviates the suffering and you're out of that moment to say, oh, it's OK. And so this, the pain is going to be there, right? You're going to be two seconds late or the, you're going to, you might have that level of feeling, but the resistance and the acceptance, like this, this dynamic, and this can be applied to big things in life or small things in life. I just thought it was like a really interesting way to go about thinking about it. And I told her last, I was like, I'm really looking to explore further this conversation about resistance and this conversation about acceptance, because I think I resist a lot of things that I can't control. I have a tough time accepting it because I feel like I'm always in control. So I'm one of those people that has a really hard time with um, the surrender philosophy as well, the acceptance philosophy, the surrender philosophy. And I think that that also pertains a lot to what we're talking about in risk. So I don't know if I'm making sense here, but I want to explore yeah. further this resistance topic. Um, so tell me more here. So tell me what more I need yeah, to know about sure. this. So I've actually used this, like it's applicable, of course, not just in your career, but in your personal life as well, like you're saying. And I always say like, one thing that's not productive is to fight a feeling, right? Like if you feel anger or feel sadness or feel frustration, like you are like a feeling is a feeling. That's it. Like it's not you. And it's like the difference between saying like, I'm an anxious person versus I'm feeling anxious. It's like the external. So we, we one need to not describe ourselves in that all encompassing terms. It is separate and apart. 
But the second thing is just because we feel a feeling, we are then in control of how that manifests, right? So I'm always like, if, if someone's angry, they have a choice in terms of how they show that anger, right? So I'm always like, you can sit with a feeling, but how you show that can be different. So exactly like your point, like if you feel some level of frustration, you can either let it escalate and be banging and be what, you know, or you can be like, I feel the frustration, but I got this. And it's almost like this um, trick I use with my clients around their inner critic. Like you have a response. So for instance, I'll give you an example. What studies have shown with your inner critic is you cannot silence it. Okay. So I used to ask people like, do you think you can silence your inner critic or ignore it? And people be like, yes, yes, yes. And I'm like, actually a lot of studies have shown you have to acknowledge that it's there just like a negative feeling, just like a frustration and anger, but have a retort back to it. So for so long, like my, I shared this with some students I was coaching the other day is like my login for my computer was like, I got this like 2021, you know? And it was like, because it was I a difficult that. year, it was like, I had to tell myself that every single time I logged into my computer. And before I get up and speak in front of thousands of people, when I feel nervous, I'm like, I hear you when I hear that little voice, but I got this. And if you find out, like I just worked with this group and I got them all to say like, what is it your phrase that's meaningful to you that, that um, you're going to say back to your inner critic. And some students at like the age of 17 were like, I hear you, but I have bigger dreams and I'm not going to let you squash them. Or I hear you, but I know I deserve better. I hear you, but, and it was just so powerful. So I think in that moment, even when you're feeling emotions of frustration or anger out of control, just saying, I hear you, but I can figure this out. I hear you, but I, and whatever it is, acknowledge it, but have that phrase that's really powerful for you to then be like, that is a feeling, but now I get to choose the level of response. And I think that is incredibly powerful. The one other tip I'll share with you, and, and this is also in my book, is I was interviewing this senior level financial executive. And she was using this kind of analogy around like the, a Venn diagram with two circles. And she said, it's so hard in this world for me not to get lost in the noise and try and control everything and prioritize. So she always says like, I focus on the intersection of what matters and what I can influence. If it matters and I can't influence it, it's not worth my time. But, and you know, but if, and if I can influence it, but it doesn't matter, why am I investing in that? So those are the kind of tactics that have really helped me and some of my clients. I love that. These are all such incredible like insights. This is the kind of conversation that I'm like, I want all my best friends to just only have like, these are the only conversations I want to have is like <laughs> growth minded. What do you, what do we even call this? Like if someone wants to learn more about ways to just, I feel like these are just mindfulness, like ways to just be, have a better mindset. Like what is this category of conversation called? While the markets may have seen a dip in Q2 VC funding, it doesn't mean that your business can't scale. It just means it might look different to how you plan. With thousands of in-house crafted integrations of marketing, sales, and service, HubSpot is on a mission to help your business grow better with a CRM platform that's easy to buy, use, and scale. Want to figure out how to streamline your deals? Easy. The Sales Hub helps you close more deals by automating your busy work. Need to automate your social media? Piece of cake. The Marketing Hub has everything you need to publish, post, and monitor your social media channels all in one hub. And with Service Hub, centralized customer data keeps your support teams all moving in one direction, forward. 
Learn how HubSpot can make it easier for your business to grow better at HubSpot.com. Running a business is hard. Managing employees is hard. Getting customers through the door is even harder. But getting paid shouldn't have to be. This is where Stacks Payments is here to help. As an intuitive platform for invoicing, recurring billing, in-person, as well as online payments, Stacks is a one-stop hub to get you paid. What's even better? Stacks has one flat fee for the month instead of percentages you can't understand. Stop spending time tracking down customers or payment tools that fail on you. Set your automations up with Stacks Payments today. As CEO and founder of Stacks and CEO School, it's been my mission to support female leaders, founders, and CEOs. With Stacks, I'm able to do so by providing fast, easy, and affordable way to process payments every day for you. Yeah, so it's so hard. It cuts across so many books and information. Like sometimes I'll be studying organizational psychologists. Sometimes I'll be looking at coaching techniques. Sometimes I'll be looking at work on mindset, right? And growth mindset. Some of the work of Carol Dweck that dates back to the 1980s. And she did some amazing work around, um, like it's really the foundational work around growth or fixed mindset and how we work with girls and, and young women around this. So there's honestly so many different areas. Um, if someone picks up my book, I mean, there's all of the sources that I pulled from are in the back and there's a lot of amazing research coming out of Harvard. There's some amazing researchers at um, Michigan and other locations. And it's really neat to see kind of the reactions and how they've tested these scenarios with different people. I, I love it. And that's what's so fun. I learned about, I guess, more of the growth philosophy, just got more interested through an organizational psychologist. I've always been interested in psychology and human, just the human mind and human design and human, just how we are as people. And I've always known that business is personal. And that was something I've always fought as a CEO and just kind of part of my journey uh, and where I am today is just that fight of like that business is personal. And I've always had an organization. I've always had a personal coach. I've always had a business coach. I've always brought in an organizational psychologist. My investors literally early on were like, you're spending what on what before you even had investment? I'm like, this stuff is really important. Um, and so my um, my like love of this type of learning is like where that comes from. But I'm always looking to to add more to it. And I love so I love that you are you are a researcher in this category. How did you become a researcher? Tell me a little bit about Begin Boldly. Tell me about the book. How did this whole process get started? Would love to hear about your journey, um, especially also a little bit more about the book as well. Yeah, of course. So um, a little bit of background. I mean, someone asked me on a recent podcast when my interest in kind of women and gender issues arose. And I had to tell them that like when I was asked this maybe like five years ago, I, I couldn't even think back. Sometimes you see this these breadcrumbs like leading to your destiny, but you have to go back to figure out where it started. And I was around the age of 11 and my uh, drama teacher pulled me aside and said, will you try out for our public speaking class, our public speaking, sorry, group. And I said, okay, I will. And so she said, go home and prepare a three minute speech. And other people the next day got up and presented on like their vacation to France, their favorite foods. I mean, we were 11 years old, their favorite sport. And I got up and gave a three minute speech on why women should be priests in the Catholic church. And the night before I'd gone home, like knocked on my rectory door, interviewed my priest, created an argument based on what was in the Bible, right? So I feel like this has been 
a topic of interest for me for so long. And um, I did my undergrad at Brown and I did a lot of work on women and inclusion and sexuality and policy. Um, and then I was on the Rhodes Scholarship at Oxford and I was the second Rhodes Scholar ever to do a master's in women's studies. And I looked at gendered styles of management and leadership um, in the corporate environment. And that wasn't enough. I was still like, I still had the gender bugs. So I went on and did a master's in comparative social policy. And I looked at the impact of family-friendly employment policies on women's engagement in the workforce. So fast forward, I joined Deloitte um, US. I was helping them to run their diversity and inclusion service offering. And about nine years ago, I launched my own business. So it's a portfolio career, a mix of research, writing, and publication, of speaking and um, facilitation, of coaching women and cohort programs as well. Um, and then also of strategic advisory work with companies because it doesn't just come down to us. It also is like, how do we cultivate cultures where women and underrepresented employees can really rise and thrive? So those are kind of the areas in which I'm in. Um, going back to the book though. So what I found working in this space was so many programs targeted at women and so many like coaching, like you said, they were focused at women at senior management levels. And it was too little, too late. Like I was seeing women enter the workforce and lose aspiration and confidence by year two on the job, not have enough role models, be grappling with male dominated cultures. And I was like, there's this huge gap in the first 10 to 15 years of people's careers. And I really wanted to create a toolkit to help like almost like a course curriculum, a coach in a book, right? To help women navigate those periods. So if we solve some of the gap that we see early, I think, and have a bigger base, I think we're going to solve a lot of the issues further up. Right now, it's too little, too late. Too little, too late. That's, I don't want to hear that. <laughs> what do you think the next kind of decade holds for the women's empowerment movement. I mean, there's a lot of dialogue happening. I, I get really frustrated around some of the dialogue because I feel that the dialogue is happening, but the action is not. And I'd love to hear your perspective on what you feel is like what the next 10 years needs to, to look like and what are the actions associated with the dialogue that needs to take place in corporations and companies you're working with or just what you see as a um, just, you know, you know, as a women's, uh, you know, research researcher, like you are, you are truly, um, you know, at the helm of this. So what do you see for the next 10 years? What needs to happen? Yeah. So I'm going to share one thing with you and then I'll answer that because it's, I mean, I could answer that question alone over a couple hours, but, um, when I went to Oxford, um, there were a lot of questions around why I was using the Rhodes Scholarship to do women's studies and that most Rhodes Scholars do law or medicine or, you know, cancer research. And it was almost as if I had to justify it. And despite the disheartening um, changes kind of in almost feeling like we're going backwards in so many ways with for women um, in terms of bodily autonomy, decisions, workplace equity, uh, maternity. There's so many different things. Um, the fact is that this has gone from what was viewed by many people as a sideline issue. Like a lot of people said to me, Christy, like this was, these were issues fought during our mother's generation, not ours. And it is now a mainstream issue. And so 
I've always felt like it was, but I feel like there is this silver lining of increased awareness across the board of truly what's at stake that didn't exist in the past. And so I think that what we are going to see in the women's movement is an uprising that we have never seen before, at least within our lifetimes. Um, around these issues, not since kind of the, if you look back to the 1960s, I think we're going to see there's a broad base of people trying to exert their rights beyond corporate spheres. Um, I think we're going to have to also see increased corporate involvement in that sphere. It's no longer fine to stay on the side and say, we care about Black Lives, Black Lives Matter, or we care about women's rights. And Um, abortion rights matter. Well, what are you doing for your employees in the every single day situation to help them address these issues, particularly in the U.S. context? Um, In terms of what organizations can do overall, we're going to see increased accountability. Like you're right. Sometimes it's a lot of smoke and mirrors. There's a great DNI vision or mission or statement, but if it's not tied to your bottom line, if your executives aren't having incentives and metrics tied to their commitment to inclusion, if you're not treating this like every other area of your business, you're honestly going to fall behind. And so we have a responsibility to hold companies accountable as well. Um, so I think that's those are some of the main things. And then, of course, there's the intersectionality of feminism and women's rights and what that really means. And I think we're going to see um, a much more inclusive movement overall because of the increasing awareness around how each of our identities are multifaceted. Um, really well said. And I think that you're 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 right on on all of these counts and something that it just it is frustrating for me in a sense of I do think that there needs to be more accountability. I think that the dialogue is happening. I think that there is a movement. I do think that we're at this intersection, but I don't think that progress we're actually going backwards. Um, and over the last three years, we've really seen that. And so there's so much work still left to be done. I think that um, one of my um, one of my friends is a um, has a wine company that's a women's empowerment wine company. And uh, one of her, it's called Teneral Sellers. And every quarter they launch a new release that's like focused around like um, a really amazing movement or a really good message. And the last collection was called 208. And it came from the fact that based on how we're progressing today, it's going to take 208 years still to gain parity um, for women. And so, and I don't know exactly how that research was calculated, but it was just a long fucking time, right? Like my kids aren't going to be, like, I'm not going to be around. My kids aren't going to be around. My granddaughters aren't going to be around um, in 208 years. And so action and accountability is what's going to change that. I think the conversation is there, but the action and accountability um, just, just, it's, it's not, um, and there needs to be, there needs to be more taking place there. And I think it has to start at the top level. I think it has to start with us um, demanding that, but then also government and policy and, um, corporations uh, and policies that also need to change. So it's it's it has to go from bottoms up and also tops down to actually make meaningful change um, in a period of time that is deserving. Yeah, I mean, I completely agree. And and the other front we haven't talked about, we've talked about individual and then organizational or policy, but there's also the home front and there's a lot of tools that are now being put out to help women negotiate kind of the caregiving roles and the to-do lists and the housework at home, which is another kind of battlefield of gender equity 
And there was this great book put out by Eve Rodsky. I don't know if you've seen it. It's called Fair Play. And Reese Witherspoon's company, Hello Sunshine, um, Jennifer Siebel Newsom, um, and Eve partnered on the documentary around it. And for anyone on this call that's struggling, feeling more tension, burnout, I mean, there's certain resources that are outlined in my book on how to address those in really research-driven ways. But another great way, I mean, this is an amazing resource on like how you move from being what they what they frame the she fault at home instead of the default and how you share more equitably within your household, which is also one of the battlefields of equity. Um, so I think there's so many different modes that you can go. Um, the other thing I want to stress is that like I wrote this book to equip individuals to lead bold and brilliant careers. But that doesn't mean I'm absolving organizations of the responsibility, right? That there still is an onus on them. It's just saying while the state of play is as, as it is, I want to equip young women, older women, whatever stage of your career to exist and build amazing careers in the existing paradigms we have. And also the book's written like a curriculum. So if you do not have funding for a women's program, if you do not have funding for coaches for your employee, there's 12 chapters. They can do one chapter a month as a book club over a year. Like take a small step to invest in that. something, whether it be this or another tool to really empower your women and equip them with actionable tools and techniques. I love it. And I swear, I feel like we're going to be such good friends and I mean, I have to come to Bermuda. I've never been to Bermuda. So now we are friends <laughs> yeah. and I like to visit my friends. And so I'm going to be coming to visit you in Bermuda so we can have a a glass of wine, a cup of tea and just discuss all things. Yeah. Uh, I think we need another like two hours to I break know. down the page. No, I'll definitely invite you back. We have... <laughs> We have the CEO school program. We've got our club. We've got we've got a million other things I want to invite you back for to just like be part of one of our one of our amazing mentors and coaches for our community. So I'm definitely gonna have you back for those things. But for my final question, I do want to ask, you know, writing this book, you know, you've gotten in the hands of thousands of readers. Like, what has been like your like the one piece of like your favorite chapter that you wrote or the one that resonated the most with your audiences? Like, what is the one thing that you're like, oh man, I'm so proud of writing that one. Like, that's my favorite. Oh, so hard. I will tell you one concept that really resonates. Okay. That's going to be easier for me than a chapter. And it's the idea that up until now, I've seen so much focus on confidence. How do we create confident women, confident girls, confident and what I've realized though, interviewing the most successful women leaders in the world, like I interviewed Lena Nair, who's now the CEO of Chanel, was the CHRO of um, Unilever Global. Um, and she and all these other women, it was so interesting. They showed up, um, but they didn't always show up in these amazingly confidently ways. They, they, they showed up courageously. And so when I interviewed other women, they would come in and they'd be like, why are you interviewing me? I don't mind if you edit out some of my comments. And I'm like, gosh, these women are so successful, but confidence is not a prerequisite for success. So what is, and why are we focusing so much on confidence? And what I realized through my research was we need to stop focusing on confidence and focus on courage instead. Mm, I so love instead that. of saying, saying to your daughter, I want you to be confident before you make this bold move, say, no, I want you to be courageous in the absence of confidence and confidence will be a byproduct or output, but ask Everyone, whether you're a CEO, whatever company industry you're in, whether you're mentoring, say, do not wait to feel confident because you'll be waiting forever. If I waited to feel confident to speak in front of people or launch my career, I would never get anything done. 
I'm sure you probably feel the same. Yes. But we've probably been courageous in the face of self-doubt, and that's the key. So I would love to move the discussion. If anyone walks away, stop talking about confidence. Let's focus on being courageous, even when we feel the least confident. Oh, mic drop. Courage over confidence. That is it. This was the perfect (laughs) ending to this. There's so much more of a conversation to be had. Christy, thank you so much for all your beautiful knowledge and wisdom. Where, how can we support you? Where can we get a copy of the book? I want a signed copy of this book, by the way. So yeah, I'm going to- well, have to come to Bermuda for wine and a longer conversation. Yes, I will. No. I will. I'm going to be emailing you right after this, but how can everyone have access to this? Where can we find you? Where can we learn more from you? Okay, no problem. So um, it's on Amazon or at your you know favorite book retailers, whether it's Barnes and Noble. Um, there's across kind of the US so um, and globally as well. It's distributed by Penguin Random House, so you can find it on there as well. Um, my website is christyhunterrscott.com, um, so it's just my name. And all of my handles, whether it's LinkedIn or Instagram are all the same, just my name. So search under my name, it's C-H-R-I-S-T-I-E-H-U-N-T-E-R and then rscott, A-R-S-C-O-T-T. And you can find me online and definitely reach out. Tell me how you're using some of the tools. Tell me what resonated from this. That's the best bit. I mean, I always say I didn't write a book to write a book. I wrote a book because I wanted this toolkit in the hands of more people. I love it. I could feel that passion and energy and I can't wait to read it. We'll definitely be bringing it as part of the CO School. We have a book club that we have as part of our community. So we'll be reading it together. I'll be linking all of it in our show notes as well for our audiences. Christy, thank you so much for your time today. And we'll see all of you listeners next week at CEO School. Running a business is hard. Managing employees is hard. Getting customers through the door is even harder. But getting paid shouldn't have to be. This is where Stacks Payments is here to help. As an intuitive platform for invoicing, recurring billing, in-person, as well as online payments, Stacks is a one-stop hub to get you paid. What's even better? Stacks has one flat fee for the month instead of percentages you can't understand. Stop spending time tracking down customers or payment tools that fail on you. Set your automations up with Stacks Payments today. As CEO and founder of Stacks and CEO School, it's been my mission to support female leaders, founders, and CEOs. With Stacks, I'm able to do so by providing fast, easy, and affordable way to process payments every day for you. Thank you for tuning into today's show. If you loved it, leave us a review. We are so proud to bring you authentic conversations, game changer expert guests, and valuable content on and offline. The best compliment you can give us is by screenshotting today's show and tagging us on Instagram at CEO School and at Sanira Madani. We are obsessed with swag, so don't be surprised if we want to send you some. Thanks for tuning into class today. And remember, nothing bad happens when women make more money.